0: Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast, I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 25 on June 2nd, 2017. I'm coming to you out of the Low Tech Recording Room in Cooksville, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. Today we'll be taking a look at Ralph Borsodi's book, Flight from the City. We'll also have our regular weekly news roundup, Institute updates, and our DIY feature. This week we're going to look at an eco-friendly herbicide. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, our handle is at low underscore techno, like us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, and check out our website, lowtechinstitute.org. There you can find both of our podcasts, our blog, and more. Today we're going to look at somebody who's thought a lot about the modern industrial age and how we're living with it. Ralph Borsodi was born in 1886 and he started out working in business in New York. But he became disillusioned with city living. He wrote three books about his study of the Industrial Society of 100 years ago. Each one of them is available online, and I'll provide a link in the podcast page, or you can find them linked in the Low Tech Library on our website. Just go to lowtechinstitute.org, click on Library in the menu, and then scroll down to the bottom uh, where it has philosophical or essay uh, think pieces, and you'll find links to these three books there. The Distribution Age is one of his books, and he lays out one of the most fundamental problems with industrial production. Of course, an industrialized process, be it building a car, harvesting corn, baking bread, or whatever, is more efficient in terms of good produced per hour of labor. Economies of scale make a factory streamlined and efficient by design. However, most people fail to realize that the flip side of this type of production, namely that it must be centralized, that is, instead of everybody going out on their own to grow tomatoes and spreading this action out across the country, a few places grow most of the tomatoes, and a few factories turn them into ketchup and other products. I had a friend who worked in a ketchup factory, and he said after that he couldn't eat ketchup for like six months. He has all kinds of stories about hijinks in the ketchup factory. Anyway... All of these products must be then transported, stored, and marketed before getting to the consumer. The efficiencies gained through industrial production are lost through distribution, and Borsodi shows this over and over and over again. This Ugly Civilization is his second book, and it's a philosophical examination of our society and the influence of industrialization on it. He looks at factories in all aspects, from the building and products to workers and consumers. He examines the common person and social leaders, and contrasting those who prize quantity versus those who search out quality. The last section of the book looks at comfort and the difficulty industrial society has in providing it to society, even though that was the original goal of industrialization. At the turn of the Industrial Revolution, it wasn't thought that, oh, We're all going to be working in factories for 12 to 15 hours a day. No, no, no. It was thought that, hey, we'll automate this, we'll work two or three hours a day, and we'll have all the goods we need to survive and be comfortable. Well, obviously that hasn't happened, and today people are working longer hours than ever. Um, And yes, we live in material abundance, but that wasn't the point of industrialization. The point of industrialization was to give us more leisure time, but that hasn't happened. The book we'll be talking about today is called Flight from the City, and it was published in 1933, and it goes into detail about the accounting and efficiency of what we would call homesteading. The book is certainly a product of its time, which was dominated by the Great Depression. The short version of the book is that Borsotti packed up his family, who had been living in an apartment in New York, and moved them out to what was then the country. He bought a few acres and a run-down farmhouse and renovated it while growing and making much of their own food and clothing. And as a business person, as an accountant, he examined the efficiencies of doing things at home versus working for a living, earning money, and then buying things instead. And it turns out to be more efficient to grow and produce your own things than buy them, in many cases. Flight from the City, which has the subtitle An Experiment in Creative Living on the Land, is split into 10 chapters. The first eight are practical, covering domestic production of food, clothing, shelter, water, education, and financing. The final two chapters are more philosophical, examining self-sufficiency. So why don't we start at the beginning? And this is a quote. In 1920, the Borsotti family, my wife, my two sons, and myself lived in a rented home. We bought our food and clothing and furnishings from retail stores. We were dependent entirely upon my income from a none too certain white collar job we lived in new york city the metropolis of the country we had the opportunity to enjoy the incredible variety of foodstuffs which pour into that great city from every corner of the continent to live in the most luxurious apartments built to house men and women in this country to use the speedy subways the smart restaurants the great office buildings the libraries theaters public schools all of the thousand and one conveniences which make New York one of the most fantastic creations in the history of man. Yet in the truest sense, we could not enjoy any of them. How could we enjoy them when we were financially insecure and never knew when we might be without a job? When we lacked the zest of living which comes from real health and suffered all the minor and sometimes major ailments which come from too much excitement, too much artificial food, too much sedentary work, and too much of the smoke and noise and dust of the city? when we had to work just as hard to get to the places in which we tried to entertain ourselves as we had to get to the places in which we worked, when our lives were barren of real beauty, the beauty which comes only from contact with nature and the growth of the soil, from flowers and fruits, from gardens and trees, from birds and animals, end quote. So I don't think that even though, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, the life he's describing, I don't think that's too different from many of us, uh, where we are, you know, working for a, A wage in a city and buying everything that we need. Um, I don't think that this uh, description of his life is all that alien to any of us today. This is the setup uh, of the flight from the city, the account of the Borsotti family moving from New York out into the country. As an accountant or as somebody who is interested in efficiency and studying efficiency, he had a fundamental question. Quote, How is it possible, I kept asking myself, for a woman working all alone to produce canned goods at a lower cost than could the Campbell Soup Company with its fine division of labor, its efficient management, its labor-saving machinery, its quantity buying, its mass production economies? Unless there was some mistake in our calculations, and he had been sitting down and calculating the cost of tomatoes and canning and labor, unless there was some mistake... In our calculations, this experiment knocked all the elaborate theories framed by economists to explain the Industrial Revolution into a cocked hat. Unless we had failed to take in some element, of which I was ignorant, into consideration, the economic activities of mankind for nearly 200 years had been based upon a theory as false as its maritime activities prior to the discovery of the fact that the world was round. Slowly, I evolved an explanation of the paradox. First, I saw it in advertising, and he goes on to talk about... Um, advertising, which is something he had worked in um, before leaving the city. Um, and then he goes on to say Here I came much nearer to a satisfactory explanation of the curious result of our cost studies of home canning. Factory production costs have, it is true, decreased year after year as industry has developed. Nothing has developed to stop the factory in a successful competition with the handicraft industry so far as costs of production were concerned. Our economists, therefore, took it for granted. That the superiority of the factory in competition with the home would continue indefinitely into the future. What they overlooked, however, was that while production costs decrease year after year, distribution costs increase. The tendency of distribution and transportation to absorb more and more of the economies made possible by factory production was ignored. Transportation, warehousing, advertising, salesmanship, wholesaling, retailing. All of these aspects of distribution cost more than the whole cost of fabricating the goods themselves. Less than one third of what the consumer pays when actually buying goods at retail is paid for the raw materials and costs of manufacturing finishing and commodities. Over two thirds is paid for distribution. While we are busily reducing the amount of labor needed to produce things, as the technocrats really discovered, we are busily engaged in increasing the numbers of employed to transport, to sell, and deliver the goods which we were consuming. That a time might come when all the economies of factory production would be lost in the cost of getting the products from the points of production to the points of consumption has been generally ignored end quote. And so this is something that I've tried out and played with myself. We grow and can a lot of the food and produce that we uh, eat. And while we're just getting underway here at our new location, where we used to live in St. Louis, we would grow and can a lot of tomatoes and other things. And if you compare the cost of growing and canning your own tomatoes, you might say, well, that's so much more work. But if you think about it, buying heirloom Organic tomatoes uh, in a can at, say, Whole Foods, which is, you know, you have to compare quality to quality. They're really expensive cans of tomatoes. And so we were able to produce and grow and can our own tomatoes at a similar price, which is kind of counterintuitive because you would expect the factory produced tomatoes to be much cheaper, but in fact, if you really examine the economies of it, they're not. And Borsardi goes on to say that, uh, quote, distribution costs tend to move in inverse relationship to production costs. And later on, I discovered that more than two thirds of the things which the average family now buys could be produced more economically at home than could be bought factory made that the average man and woman could earn more by producing at home than by working for money in an office or factory, and that, therefore, the less time they spent working away from home and the more time they spent working at home, the better off they would be." And this is obviously something we've taken to heart. And while um, my partner works a full-time job, uh, I spend a lot of time at home, and while I don't earn much of a wage right now, Uh, I do a lot of the things that we would otherwise have to pay someone else to do like roofing our house or uh, building the garden or growing the food or building the beehives and things like that. Let's take the beehives for example. Uh, I recently bought a whole bunch of uh, wood uh, to build new beehives and frames and well if we had bought them we would have spent about $1,200 for the amount of uh, beekeeping equipment I've probably spent a few hundred dollars, and uh, it'll end up being 40 hours of work, uh, but I'll have made quite a lot of beekeeping equipment uh, for less than, even if you paid me a wage, less than we would have had to pay to buy them all. On top of that, I'm making twice as many of the equipment that I need, and then I'll sell them, and it will completely cover the materials cost. So the net cost to our bank account will be positive. We should be making an income on the beehives rather than having to expend any money. I recently heard something on a, it was either an NPR interview or a podcast interview, with somebody who was talking about the problem that engineers have when they look at problems, and I realized that I have often fallen victim to this trap where we look at the world as systems and uh, interlocking bits and we forget about the individual people and I absolutely do fall a victim to this uh, occasionally. Um, and Borsotti, who, you know, is trained as an accountant, often falls into this trap as well, looking at the dollars and cents of every interaction and doesn't really think about the, the human factor. But in a couple places, he points out that, quote, actually our moving to the country was less inspired by the notion that we could reduce the cost of living than by the conviction that we could live better than we had in the city. So far as was concerned, better health was more in our minds than saving money. We sought to put pure food and fresh food rather than cheap food. The discovery that home production made it possible for us to enjoy better food at a lower cost than we had in the city came later, End quote. So I find it interesting that although he spends a lot of time talking about the economics of building and making things himself, they were really inspired by having better things. And that's, I feel, true for us. A lot of times we buy uh, raw ingredients and I end up cooking rather than buying prepared foods for the most part. And I feel like we eat really well um, most of the time. Uh, and yeah, it does take more time and I have to stop work at 5 so that I can cook dinner. But the dinners we eat I I feel like are much better than we would be otherwise eating if we were buying prepared foods all the time. And that's just one example of uh, doing things for yourself ending up giving you a better quality than you would otherwise get. Another aspect of Flight from the City is the experimental nature of what he's doing, and this is something I really identify with um, as somebody who constantly is experimenting and trying out new ideas um, and very often failing and learning from those failures. Um, Borsotti says, quote, I cannot therefore make this point too strongly. The only alternative to experience guidance is experimenting on a small scale. Mistakes can then be considered part of one's education, end quote. And this is true. Um, I am often guilty of biting off too much at one time. For example, um, I recently bought a whole bunch of wood to make the shingles for our house, Um, but I bought wood that was not ideal, let's say. And therefore, um, I have a large pile of wood in my garage right now that I'm going to have to split up into firewood, which is fine, Um, and I'll certainly get some shingles out of it, but it won't be the most efficient use of all that wood because I can't make shingles out of all of it. Nevertheless, it was a learning experience, and next time I buy wood to make shingles, I'll certainly know more exactly what I'm looking for, but that's what part of the experiment was, is learning what to look for, and I'll probably detail this in a blog post coming up so others can learn from my mistakes and not have to repeat them. Borzotti also talks about raising animals um, and the ups and downs and experiments and the successes and failures they had with that. Quote, "eventually we hope to produce all our own feed as we believe it is thoroughly practicable and extremely profitable for homesteaders to do so an acre devoted to corn wheat and half an acre devoted to alfalfa soybeans or clover would take care of the feed for all the livestock needed by the average family especially if the fields are well fertilized and properly cultivated commercial feed has cost us consistently two or three times as much as farmers in the grain growing sections of the country receive for corn and other grain sometimes it has been four times as high" By the time freight, storage, and handling charges are added to the price the farmer has received, the price has no resemblance to that of the primary markets. Even though it costs the homesteader much more to raise feed than it does the farmer who operates a grain factory in the West, it would cost him less to do so than to buy feed. Since we have raised so little of our feed, what we have actually done with our livestock operations has been to substitute a feed bill monthly for the milk and butter bill and the egg and poultry bill, which we used to receive in the city. The feed bills, however, have not only been much smaller, but have enabled us to enjoy a quality of dairy and poultry products much higher than we were able to secure in the city. End quote. And this is something we've thought about, too, as we've had chickens for five years. Uh, We do spend money on chicken feed because I haven't had space to grow enough food to feed them without feed. But that 50-pound bag of chicken feed every few months is much less than we would otherwise pay for in eggs. And now that we live out in the country, I'm going to be growing corn and a couple other foods to supplement the feed that we buy for the chickens. And on top of that, we are going to begin selling eggs. And as we increase our chicken flock, uh, we have four chickens right now and already have way more eggs than we can possibly eat. And we've been giving them away to family but as we increase to probably up to 10 chickens, uh, we'll start selling eggs. And the rate that we can sell eggs at is more than enough to cover the feed bill for all the 10 chickens, even if we have to buy every single bit of feed. And therefore, uh, we would have basically free eggs for the cost of labor for me to keep the chickens. The eggs that we'll be able to sell will easily cover the cost of their feed. And so the uh, efficiency of it is great for us. Uh, We get in effect, free eggs, for the simple fact that we keep the chickens and sell the eggs. Borsodi goes on in another part of the book to caution against getting into production, and he talks about the times that they tried to, say, have 100 chickens and sell eggs and poultry, um, and the other uh, sorts of cottage industries that they tried to do for making a significant amount of money off of specializing in one sort of thing, and he said that as soon as they tried to produce to distribute or to sell a certain item, they quickly lost their efficiency and the market rate was so low that they weren't able to sell them at a high enough markup to make it worth their while. So the only efficient way to do it was to raise and grow and produce for yourself rather than for distribution or sale. The other benefit to operating on a small scale is the lack of need for massive power equipment. Today, when I go to town, uh, I ride my bike by multi-million dollar operations with huge uh, barns full of expensive equipment. And to do factory farming on such a large scale, industrial farming, you need these large pieces of equipment. These are fixed costs, even though agriculture is a variable return industry. Every year is going to be different. You're going to get a different price for the different amount of food that you're able to grow. But Every year, your costs for your loans, for your tractors and farm, are going to be fixed. And so this puts you between a variable rate of return against a fixed cost, and this is what causes some farms to go under. Well, on the small scale, Borsodi says, quote, We have experimented with the use of power in farming, but power is really unnecessary at the scale we operate. We have a Fordson tractor on our place, but it was purchased only because we had to clear the land on which we built our new home. It is more than paid for itself in excavating, in road making, and hauling timbers and stones at Dogwoods, which is the name of their farm. Even the small garden tractor, which represents an investment of around $200. And I just want to note, that was $200 back in the 1930s. Today, that would be about $2,000. Returning to the quote, It is of doubtful utility unless the homestead goes in for a field of corn, wheat, and other grains. Then, of course, either a horse or a small tractor becomes a paying investment, with the horse perhaps the better of the two under present conditions. It takes money to buy gasoline and oil. The fuel for the horse can be produced on the farm. The horse, too, makes it possible to reduce expenditure for fertilizer. No wonder that since the Depression there has been a decided increase in the use of horses for farming and a corresponding decline in the use of tractors. End quote. And this is really interesting because this is at the time when tractors became the new thing in agriculture. They became an important fixed cost at this time. It's the beginning of mechanized agriculture for much of the United States. And it's also the time at which many people bought tractors uh, during the uh, roaring 20s when the economy was doing very well. They went into debt to buy new mechanized farm equipment. And then when the Great Depression hit, the Dust Bowl and other uh, ecological problems hit, they weren't able to make their payments, and they lost their farms in the Great Depression. The Great Depression, uh, one of the knock-on effects was the loss of farms. It's a common trope about a family losing their farm. It wasn't just because of ecological or climatological changes, it was because of these fixed costs in the agriculture industry when they bought tractors instead of using horses that could reproduce themselves, that could feed themselves and could be used to produce fertilizer. It was a fundamental change in the farming economy and Borsodi has recognized it and understood that when you're producing for yourself, you're producing on such a small scale, you don't need a tractor. And indeed much of the work that I've been doing on around our house has been by hand and it's been a lot of work but it's manageable for a person to do, even more so for two people. Now, it's not all great advice. He goes on for some at some length talking about linking the overeating of grains to tuberculosis for some reason, and there's some other medical quackery here. But for the most part, um, a lot of what he actually knows a lot about, which is um, farming and economy, uh, he does have a lot of good things to say. You just have to take, with a grain of salt, his uh, rather dubious claims about uh, medical links between different things uh, because it's not his area and he probably shouldn't have commented on them. After talking about food, he goes on to talk about the building and remodeling of the house that they took. And uh, something I really liked about Borsotti is that he is not, by his own admission, not a handy person. Uh, He did not grow up as a carpenter or with any of these skills. And uh, he with uh, great gusto, takes on the learning of new skills, and he says, quote, I learned that the deficiencies of experience and skill could be offset by the time and pains put into each job. Before I was through with my building operations on seven acres, another one of their farms, I came to the conclusion that much of the work which we think only skill mechanics can do is quite within the capacities of any intelligent and persevering man or woman, I'll add, end quote. And, This is, I think, even more so uh, today with uh, what we call around here YouTube University, uh, because, well, I have, you know, I'm generally pretty handy and can figure things out. Uh, I certainly go on to YouTube and look at how other people have done things uh, just to get an idea of traps to avoid or uh, perhaps tips uh, that I might not have uh, figured out for myself already. Um, So I think that if you give yourself time and space to experiment and a safety net so that you don't hurt yourself or fail too spectacularly, I think you can do a lot more than you give yourself credit for around your own house. Now, obviously, I should put in a disclaimer here. Don't monkey around with things that have the potential to kill you. Uh, So don't monkey around with electricity uh, without somebody competent there to give you a hand to show you what to do. Uh, Don't Build things that are supposed to support significant amounts of weight uh, in a precarious location uh, until you are confident in your building skills. For example, uh, don't forget that water weighs a lot, so if you're building rain barrels, don't put them on your flat roof without understanding the engineering of of roofs. Uh, Don't uh, put them in a place where they might collapse and uh, hurt somebody uh, without thinking through the... Uh, engineering of that and possibly getting in touch with somebody who knows more about that sort of thing. But for the most part, if you're building raised beds, there's no way that you're going to build a raised bed that's going to hurt somebody. So, you know, give it a try. And if it fails, you'll see where and how it fails. And then in the next iteration, you can uh, update that. Uh, I've gone through many different ways of building raised beds until I came to uh, the way that I like to build them. And uh, you can do the same thing with all kinds of things around your house. Don't be afraid to try it. Uh, You have nothing really to lose other than the materials cost. You forget that much of the cost of getting things repaired around your house is actually uh, the labor costs. The materials are usually quite cheap. And of course, Borsotti, the accountant, goes into a discussion of the economy of doing things for yourself. Quote, By owning our own home, and above all by making our own investment small because we were willing to put some of our own labor into rebuilding, we cut down the cost of shelter to not much more than I earned by one or two days work a month. That left just so much more of what we used to spend for rent available for other purposes than shelter, We had the income from four or five days more each month to save or spend. One of the dividends upon which we had not counted was that of health. We found that this sort of work, if it was not overdone, of which there was a real danger when one's enthusiasm was great, furnishes wholesome and necessary exercise. And instead of being just the mechanical exercise of gymnasium work, it is exercise for the intellect and emotions as well. And I find this to be absolutely true. In both respects what he says about overdoing it, which I certainly have a propensity to do. Um, This weekend, for example, my uh, partner has gone uh, home to visit her family, and I've stayed here to work because there's a lot to do in the spring, and I have to remember to remind myself to eat meals and to stop working at some point otherwise i will work 16 hours a day before i realize what i've done and then i'll be exhausted and useless so i have to pace myself it is a real uh, issue when you're doing work that you really enjoy Uh, it's very easy to overwork yourself so that's caution number one and caution number two is overdoing it if you are not used to physical labor take it easy i am used to physical labor and i try and stay in good shape And I run and work out through the winter when I don't have as much physical work to do. But even still, I go to bed exhausted most nights from what I've been doing around the household. Caution there not to overwork yourself, but also it's nice to have a job where you're interested and wanting to work yourself to a physical uh, state of exhaustion. It's a good feeling each evening. Another really surprising thing about Borsotti or reading this is, If you have an understanding of the state of agriculture and uh, food production today, you'll be shocked to find that Borsodi recognized these ills in the 1930s, and that we are still perpetuating these problems. Uh, For example, quote, Looked at from its broadest standpoint, the system generally used today involves a shocking waste of the nation's soil resources. It is no exaggeration of the actual situation to say that we are now taking up organic material from the soil, converting it into foodstuffs, and then destroying that organic matter irretrievably with firing chemicals in the sewage disposal plants of our cities, end quote. Although he writes in a slightly dated manner, this is exactly what we're still doing today. We see topsoil erosion, we see leaching of chemical nutrients from the agricultural soil into the waterways and the algae blooms, and a one-way street of nutrients from uh, factories that produce uh, fertilizer into farms, into food, into the waste stream. And it's exactly what was happening in the 1930s that Borsotti recognized um, that continues to happen today. It's, it's really uh, surprising how uh, clearly he saw all of these factors. So I'm about halfway through talking about the different aspects of flight from the city. He goes on to talk about uh, education and how they uh, homeschool their children. He talks about uh, loom weaving and how they are making their own cloth and a few other areas, uh, water production and how they produce their own water and hot water and things like that. Uh, so it's a it's an interesting read. It's it's definitely, it's a quick read too. It's only a, 100 pages or so. It's really not that long of a read. And I find one of the biggest takeaways is that this idea of self-sufficiency um, can really be summed up by one thing he says, uh, when you think about the efficiencies of working at home and not having a normal, quote-unquote, job outside the home. Quote, "...it is remarkable how much more appreciative of one's work employers and patrons become when they know that one is independent enough to decline unattractive commissions. And, of course, if the wage-earning classes were generally to develop this sort of independence, employers would have to compete and bid up wages to secure workers instead of workers competing by cutting wages in order to get jobs." End quote. Basically, the idea there is if you were able to be at home and produce a lot of what you need to survive, you would only have to work outside the home because you want to. And we hope that this will be some modicum of what we have in the future. Once our garden is in and once our heating system is in and our other systems are in place, we're able to cut our costs, our external costs greatly. And therefore, if uh, my partner wanted to cut down to part time, that would be something that she could do because we don't need as much income. That would be a a goal of ours eventually. Um, And so while I'm not earning a lot of money doing what I'm doing, I'm replacing the outgoing costs by producing the things that we would otherwise be buying at home for us for not a lot of money. So you can find Flight from the City. You can simply Google Flight from the City Borsodi PDF and you'll find uh, plenty of versions you can read online. I've also linked to them, as I said, on our website and on this podcast page. So definitely worth uh, checking out. Now on to our DIY feature. This week I outlined a type of safe herbicide. It's actually so safe you could drink it. I wouldn't recommend it because it would be very vinegary and salty, but you could certainly drink it. So uh, Tony, uh, a good friend of mine from St. Louis, who uh, was part of Deep Green Garden Co-op with me, had a great little herbicide that is pretty eco-friendly. It's just a half gallon of water, a half gallon of vinegar, and a cup of salt. You mix these together, and you might have to heat them up so that the salt absorbs more quickly, and then you can put them in a spray bottle and spray them on whatever sorts of plants you don't want to grow. Now you have to note that this will salt the earth wherever you spray it so you don't want to spray it in your garden to get rid of weeds because then your plants that you do want to grow will have trouble with all the vinegar and salt. So this is good for cracks in the driveway or other locations where you don't mind uh, plants not growing. A good application will kill most weeds and they'll be dead for months to a year depending on where you live and how pernicious the, the root system is. And uh, it's, yeah, real easy, real safe, good sort of uh, little trick to use so you can avoid using glyphosate or Roundup or however you want to call it. An alternative would be just to use boiling water to pour that on whatever weeds you want to go away, and that is something you could use in your garden to clear before you plant is boiling water. That would certainly get rid of a lot of weeds, although producing that much boiling water would be quite the chore. I'm not to all right, let's take a quick look at this week and low-tech news. We've got some interesting articles on zero-waste living in the country, a solar cooker, composting, and historical bike lanes. But the big news this week was the Trump administration's decision to pull out of the Paris climate deal. As a nonprofit, we have no official stance on any one piece of legislation or politician, but climate change and the future of humanity are our core research interests here at the Institute, and we do have an educated point of view on climate packs. Uh, be they the Kyoto Protocols, from which the U.S. was conspicuously absent, or the Paris Agreement. These are all band-aids on an arterial wound. None of these agreements examine the structure of our global world in a fundamental way. Their main goal is to allow our society to continue along the same trajectory as we are on now, just with different energy sources. How do I know this? It's simple math. Every gallon of gasoline, for example is the distilled remains of 98 tons of prehistoric plant material. That is enough to fill an entire train boxcar or cover 40 acres of farmland. So if we take that 40 acres per gallon number and multiply that out by gallons of gasoline burned annually, which is 345 million gallons, that is the equivalent of 14 billion acres of farmland's crops distilled into gasoline. Right now, 11% of the world's land is arable, according to the World Bank. This means we have 3.5 billion acres of farmland available right now. We use almost five times the concentrated energy of all of the world's crops just to drive our cars. This doesn't even touch on energy generation or other uses. If you think about it, crops, and really gasoline, are stored solar energy, right? The sun shines on the crops. The crops make biomass. That biomass is distilled into gasoline. The sun's combined output globally on an annual basis are one-fifth of the amount of gasoline we burn every year. So we are not growing enough biomass on our farmland to cover a fifth of our gasoline needs for vehicles. Right there, we know that we're not getting enough energy incoming from the sun to even just drive our cars around. I can look at this another way and show you the same thing. A gallon of gasoline is the equivalent of 34 kilowatts of energy. A low-energy use house uses 10 kilowatt hours uh, a day. A high-energy house uses about 30 kilowatt hours of energy a day. So if we multiply that out, it's about 12 billion kilowatts or 12,000 gigawatts of energy used in gasoline to drive ourselves around each year, 12,000 gigawatts. In 2015, we produced 232 gigawatts of solar energy and 487 gigawatts of wind power. So if we put all of our solar and our wind toward charging all electric vehicles, we'd only have half the power we currently use for transportation of cars. And again, that's just talking about the movement of cars. It's not talking about energy generation for homes or factories or anything else. Why am I going through all these rough calculations? To show how futile these climate agreements are when they ignore the fundamental problem with industrialized society. It cannot exist without fossil fuels. The only agreement that I could see as being worth signing would be one that agrees to use the diminishing amounts of our remaining fossil fuels to completely overhaul the global infrastructure to a post-fossil fuel condition. That means building transportation systems, food systems, shelter, and other necessities that can function without any fossil fuel inputs, This would have to be a worldwide effort on the level of expenditure of the last world war. Nobody is talking about this. So whether or not the U.S. agrees to any climate deal is really not the central issue as we see it. We're looking at rapid global temperature increases, sea level rise, more destructive storms, droughts, wildfires, and other effects over the next hundred years. At the same time, our fossil fuel reserve will be drawing down. Estimates vary. But most sources say we have 50 years of oil left, 110 years of coal, and about 100 years of natural gas. So we'll be struggling with extreme climate changes with less and less of the fuel we use to do everything. This is not a sunny picture, and this is why the Institute is working to find solutions to house, clothe, and feed ourselves with less and less fossil fuels. It's clear these international agreements are generally good, or at least trying to do good in... Combating global climate change but unless people face up to the reality that our way of life is completely undergirded and supported by the use of fossil fuels and until we realize we need a completely different transportation food and other support systems that do not use fossil fuels at all until that realization is made there's going to be no real change by any of these agreements and i hate to end on such a sad and dour note but that is the reality as, as we see it. This isn't a, a made-up opinion. These are cold, hard facts. We just don't have enough solar radiation to power everything we need. We can't keep living like we are because we are using so much concentrated energy from the fossil fuels that we're burning through hundreds of years of energy, of solar energy, each year by using fossil fuels. We're using much more energy than we have coming in. It would be like spending everything on a credit card and then the bill coming due and your income not matching what your expenditures are. We're spending more than we're making in terms of energy and that is not sustainable. Now for a brief recap of the research we have going on around the institute. We've had to drop everything to replace our roof and this involves um, pulling off the old wooden shingles and replacing them with new wooden shingles. And you might think wooden shingles don't seem like a very ecological choice, but on the blog this last week I outlined the ecological and economic aspects of wood roofs versus asphalt shingles, which is what is most common in the United States today. And it turns out that the wood replacement shingles actually have much less of an ecological imprint than the asphalt shingles which are pretty dirty so check that out on the blog we've been busy uh, building beehives Uh, i've outlined a couple of different beehives a few months ago uh, that i'll be building and i'll outline them on the blog next week and we'll have a couple for sale as well so uh, hopefully i can get my bees rehomed into these new hives and i'll post a video about that so stay tuned We had a board meeting last weekend, and we had to go through some uh, bureaucratic and behind-the-scenes organizational uh, topics, dealing with uh, the IRS and things like that. Uh, We are applying for 501c3 status. Uh, Once we get that status, we will open up a membership drive. We had originally planned to have an open house this weekend and show people how we've been making wooden shingles by hand. Unfortunately, um, we are having a disruption in our current insurance situation so we are shopping around and finding a new insurance provider because for some reason most home insurance policies don't um, allow somebody to have a business where people come and learn to use circular saws or hammers uh, or other dangerous quote unquote equipment even though we go through great safety precautions and work to make sure everyone is safe and learning appropriately, uh, it's still an issue that the insurance company is a little trepidatious about. So we're hopeful that we have found a solution to this problem and we'll be able to offer workshops and open houses again soon. Uh, More on that, I just pointed out, because it might not be something you think about, but uh, insurance is a, a sticky sort of thing for people for organizations uh, similar to ourselves like folk schools and others where you get to learn exciting new uh, hands-on skills, which I think is a great thing, but unfortunately we are in an unusual insurance niche. That's all we have this week. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room, Our intro music was Agency Smile off the self-titled album by The Agrarians. That song is under the Creative Commons non-commercial share-alike and attributions license. And this podcast is under the Creative Commons attribution share-alike license, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio. And if you enjoy this free podcast, please help or pay us by sharing it with a friend. You can find out more information about the Low Technology Institute at lowtechinstitute.org. You can follow us on Twitter at low underscore techno and also reach me directly at lowtechinstitute at gmail.com. would be grateful to have your feedback. Thanks and take care. That is good tea.